Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 10. We're in verses 5 through 13. It's Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 13. And let's hear this as it really is, God's very own word to us, his beloved people. This is what he says. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, our key truth, what I'm hoping we walk away with uh, this morning, is simply this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Many of you know the name D.A. Carson, the famous New Testament uh, scholar, evangelical. Before he was a New Testament scholar, he was a student at McGill University in Canada studying chemistry and mathematics. And he had a fellow roommate in uh, that department from Pakistan, a Pakistani Muslim, and his name was Muhammad Yusuf Guraya. Muhammad Yusuf Guraya had come to Canada and left all of his family in Pakistan. He's a little bit of an older man, very devout Muslim, and in Canada he encountered for the first time Christians. And he didn't really know what to make of them, and he had lots of questions, and so D.A. Carson got the brunt of those questions and quickly found himself out of his depth and oftentimes didn't know how to answer him. He would say things like, all right, Mr. Carson, you're a mathematics uh, minor at least, and so I, I would assume you know what mathematics entails. So if you have one cup and you add another cup, how many cups do you have? Carson saying uh, two. All right, well, if you have two cups and you add another cup, how many cups do you have? Three. You can see where this is going. All right. Well, if you have one God and you add another God, how many gods do you have? Two. And you add another God to that, how many gods do you have? Three. All right, so you worship three gods, right? Oh, how do I answer this? And he's, he's perplexed all the time, didn't really know how to deal with it. So finally he figured, all right, well, I can't really answer this guy's questions to any degree that seems or feels satisfactory. So what I'm going to do is give him a Bible in Arabic because he's never read the Bible. So he gave him a Bible. He's very grateful. He said, um, well, this is arranged, obviously, very different from the Quran that I'm used to. Where do I start? So I thought, well, uh, start in the Gospel of John. That's probably the best place to go. Now, Muhammad did something in the Gospel of John that we often fail to do, often to our detriment. He read it meditatively. So Muhammad, you know, oftentimes what we do is, you know, we have a Bible reading plan, and, and maybe you just really feel the burn of that, and so you're like, all right, well, i got to get through my four chapters today, so you and then done, and you fill out the reading report, right? Done. He didn't do it that way. Muhammad started in John chapter 1, and he read verse by verse. He'd read five verses in a day, 
Take the whole rest of the day, maybe even the next day, to ponder it, think about it, wrestle with it, add another verse to that, and on and on and on. It began to sink in. Well, a few months later, uh, D.A. Carson invites his friend, Muhammad, to come visit with his family in the, um, uh, national prop, or the national capital of Ottawa. And during his visit, he takes them to the, the capital buildings and shows them all the sites around Ottawa. They go into the parliament building, and they take the tour. And at the end of the tour, the tour guide comes, and in the rotunda, I've never been, but according to all the best sources, in the rotunda of this parliament building, there are eight pillars around, you know, the, surrounding the, the rotunda. And the tour guide comes with this, this pillar. This pillar stands for Aristotle. You see that fluted arch? That means that stands for Aristotle. And that's there because government must be based on knowledge. Uh, this pillar right here, that stands for Socrates. And that's there because government must be based on wisdom. And this pillar here, that stands for Moses. For government must be based on law. It goes all the way around, all the eight pillars. And then, at the corner of the group, the tour guide hears, to D.A. Carson's intense embarrassment, where is Jesus Christ? D.A. Carson is looking for a hole he can get into. Oh, no, no. And the tour guide does what all of us do when we're presented with a question that's embarrassing, we don't really know the answer to or how to answer it. You go, uh, what? And, and, and Muhammad does what most foreigners do when they haven't been understood or answered immediately. They say, well, it must be because of my accent or I've been too quiet. So he answers very slowly and much more loudly this time, where is Jesus Christ? Your guy thinks, oh no. Well, um, why should he be here? Because I read in your gospel, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And D.A. Carson thought, well, preach it, brother. <laughs> That's embarrassing, but preach it. Where is Jesus Christ? And, you know, Muhammad had realized, even though at that point I don't think he was a believer, I hope he's a believer, I don't know how that story turned out for him, I hope one day we will see him in heaven, but what he realized is the truth of John chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Muhammad knew the value of the law. He did. In his culture, in his religion, they knew there was a premium on obedience. That's how you become right with Allah. You do your best to obey him every step of the way. He knew the law was good. He could probably talk in circles around all of us in terms of the law's goodness. But what really stood out to him was that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And what I want to suggest to you is that that self-disclosure of God by God in the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the, the hidden heartbeat that gives life to the words of our passage this morning. It's what enables Paul to say so confidently, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So let me ask you a question. What gives you confidence in your ability to be an ambassador for Jesus in your various spheres of influence? What gives you confidence? That you can do it, that you have the resources to do it, or the strength, or the perseverance. What gave Paul his confidence? Let's think about that. What gave Paul his confidence that he could so confidently say, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? Do you think that Paul had confidence in during the course of his preaching? Do you think it was his writing ability? 
I don't think so. Paul has the distinction of being the only writer in Scripture that we have uh, a, a sort of memorandum in Scripture that says his writing is actually kind of hard to understand. Think about that. Do you think it was his stature? Nope. We know that he was physically unimpressive, and he looked weak, which is a fact that his detractors often use to their own advantage in an effort to discredit him. Do you think it was his eloquent eloquence? We know he wasn't eloquent. Was it his piety? Well, Paul rehearsed all of his piety, and he said at the end of the day, that was all rubbish. Do you think it was his status as an apostle? Well, he himself said, I am the least of the apostles. In fact, I'm not really even worthy to be called an apostle. Paul's confidence wasn't founded on any of those things. It was founded upon this reality. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul lived and breathed the conviction that the words of the gospel are the words of life. Reconciliation with God, forgiveness of sins, freedom from sin, guilt and shame, a deep and abiding sense of worth and value, purpose and meaning and destiny for your life, the, the, the triumph of justice, the vindication that all the oppressed look for and hope for, the restoration of broken relationships, the wholeness of our inner being, an, an unimpeachable integrity, intimate friendship and fellowship with God, access to the never-ending, superabundant riches of heaven. In short, the whole panoply of salvation is granted without distinction to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. That fact, and that fact alone, is what gave Paul his confidence. And because of this, Paul's confidence rested in the nearness of Christ to everyone who believes. It's almost as if he was continually asking himself, Muhammad Yusuf Garaya's question, where is Jesus Christ? Where is Jesus Christ? And his answer was always and without fail, in the word of faith that we proclaim and in which you have believed. So let's see it more particularly from our text. In verse 5, Paul quotes Leviticus 18.5 to show that the, the way that we almost grapple towards life in, if we choose to reject Christ, is so utterly hopeless and without merit. Now, when Paul says that Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does these things shall live by them, he does not mean to suggest that the law is bad. He doesn't mean to suggest that the Old Testament people thought or believed they could earn their salvation. And Moses didn't mean those things either. But Paul approaches that thorny question that all of, all of us sooner or later must confront whenever we're convicted with the law of God. What are we going to do? Keeps them, shall live by them. What hope is there for the person who fails to do them? The law is good, but what will you do if you fail to keep it? And this is where Paul, again, draws that great united strand that united us, unites us all. We have all of us failed to keep it. We're united in that fact, Jew and Gentile, man and woman, rich and poor, black and white, conservative and liberal, introvert and extrovert, and any other distinction you care to mention, all of us are united in this. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You ever wake up in the morning and just think to yourself, I don't know if I have what it takes to be a Christian today. You ever make it about halfway through the day and think, I don't know if I have what it takes to be a Christian the rest of this day. You ever make it to an evening and think, I don't know if I have what it takes to be a Christian the rest of this week. The answer is you probably don't in and of yourself. But the hope for you, the hope for me, 
the hope for all of us, without distinction, is not because we are Jew or Gentile, not because we are introverted, or not because we are extroverted, not because we are inwardly of the disposition that we love rules and structure, and so we're going to do our level best to make sure we obey them all, or not because we are of the inner disposition that rules and structure are kind of a bummer, and hey, live your life the best that you can, but it doesn't really matter in the end, not because of anything that we choose to make distinctions, but because of this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the answer. The law, it came through Moses. They did, and it was a good thing, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so in verse 6, Paul directs our attention to another Old Testament text, Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 to 14. What hope is there for the person who fails to keep God's law? What hope was there for Old Testament believers who failed to keep God's law? Remember, in faith, the nearness of God by his grace. That was their hope. That was their lifeline. Don't, don't say in your heart, Paul is saying, and Moses was saying many years before, don't say in your heart, how am I to reach God? By, by, by mounting up to the heavens, by my mighty efforts and works, maybe by, by scouring the depths in search of anything that I can bring up and dig up to rec- recommend myself to God. No, but by graciously waiting upon his promise, for he has brought himself near. And he brought himself near for Old Testament saints by the word of his promise. And that promise included reconciliation with the the, the sacrificial system, which pictured the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. And now he brings himself near in the greater and final word of Jesus, his son, in the person and work of all that he did for us. Right standing in his sight is obtained by faith, not by our works. And that is the righteousness that is based on faith. The law, it came through Moses. We have some of the sweetest words of gospel comfort in all of the scriptures, I think. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, I I think we have to be careful here because there's always the tendency in our own hearts to turn this into a formula. And, and a sort of quick fix and really miss the heart of what this really means for God's people. We, we miss the point entirely if we view this as a formula for obtaining salvation by our own work. No, the gospel it teaches us has been brought near to us. Our confession is a confession that Jesus alone can save us, that he alone is Lord. And our believing in our hearts is a believing that the same God who raised him from the dead will raise us up with him to eternal life because we are united to him. So so this isn't Paul's sort of sinner's prayer that you just pray when your heart is feeling anxious and then as long as you pray to the right way or with a certain tempo or with the right words or maybe in the right emotional state or the right place, then okay, I guess maybe you can consider yourself good. It's not like that at all. It's the confession that the only person who can save us has in fact done so. It's the cry of a heart that longs for reconciliation with God, that is weighted down by sin and guilt and shame, and yet finds in Christ the perfect answer to all of that. And that's why Paul continues in verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So the dynamic of salvation is not ever one, not ever one of mighty works done for, by me for God or his kingdom. 
It's the word of faith, the promise of salvation brought near to me by Christ through the proclamation of his gospel and given purchase in my heart, which cries out, I need you. And it's given utterance in my mouth, which confesses, I am yours. I think this should teach us something very profound. At one level, it may seem the simplest of all things. If we've been Christians for any length of time, of course this is what we believe. Of course this is what we've heard. Of course this is what we want to rehearse to our hearts day in and day out. And yet it still should teach us something deep and profound about how God measures usefulness in his kingdom. I mean, think about it. Paul's confidence in this, it rested on an amazing kind of self-forgetfulness. Just an amazing kind of self-forgetfulness. How many of us, on a day-to-day basis, when we make mistakes, we say the wrong thing, or we, we sin against a loved one, how many of us immediately just take that to heart, and, and we really struggle to view that as, uh, that's not ultimately my identity, that's not who really I am. I belong to Jesus Christ, and He is my Lord, and He is my Savior, and He is my life and my light. No, often we, we feel that, we, we wrestle with it, and we, we weight it down by, by, by feelings of inadequacy by feelings of separation and alienation from God. We struggle with these things because we still failed to learn the dynamic of the gospel. We still, at some level, think that we can, by some dint of our own moral effort, recommend ourselves to God. And yet, the gospel teaches us an amazing kind of self-forgetfulness. Paul's status in the world, his reputation, what he looked like, his accomplishments, his lack of accomplishments, it just didn't enter into the equation. May it be so with us. We, we often appeal to Paul, by the way, and I hear this, I've said it myself many times. When we get to heaven, uh, maybe Paul will teach a remedial class on all the stuff we got wrong, you know, or, or maybe, you know, he's looking down from heaven right now and thinking, oh my God, gosh, you guys are always messing up what I wrote. I don't think Paul's doing that at all. I think Paul is doing what he did in, in his life. Look to Jesus. He's your teacher, and he's near. How often we fail to really come to the, to the reality of that because we still think we need some kind of mediator and we choose Paul to get between us and Jesus, to understand what Jesus really means for us. So Paul's saying, Jesus is near. Don't say in your heart, who's going to ascend to heaven? Will it be Paul for us? Will it be my own moral efforts? Don't say to yourself, who's going to descend into the abyss? Scrounge around on the earth, the best commentaries you can find. Maybe that will help me to recommend myself to God. Don't say in your heart any of those things. Say in your heart this, the word is near. In the gospel that I believed, proclaims to my heart and gives utterance to my mouth that Jesus is Lord and he is the one who saves me. I think that means that we ought to ask ourselves that difficult question, where is Jesus Christ in the story of our lives? I think, I know this is certainly true for me, many of us could do with a guy like Muhammad Yusuf Garaya to pester us with that question, where is Jesus Christ? How, how often do we narrate the story of our lives? And we go through the rotunda of our own experience, and there's all the pillars. And we say, well, this pillar, it stands for the educational method I've chosen for my children, for knowledge is important. And, and this pillar, it stands for the time I make for my spouse, because marriage is sacred. And, and this pillar, it stands for my diligence at work, for God has called me to it. And on and on and on. And would we have a Muhammad Yusuf Gariah to pipe up and say to us, where is Jesus Christ? Where is Jesus Christ? How often on social media, and I don't mean to necessarily pick on social media, but social media is a good test case for us because it is probably one of the most discursive as opposed to 
merely uh, uh, intuitive or organic things that we as just as a culture almost all universally participate in. When on, you're on social media, just by its very nature, you're having to think very thoughtfully about the pillars of your life that you're going to choose to emphasize. Where is Jesus Christ? How often could someone view the scroll of our social media feeds and tell that we live by the conviction that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? How often instead do people see, here's the pillar of this political belief. For right thinking in this regard, it's important. Here's the candidate that we should support for, he's the one to fix things. And know that we would have a Muhammad Yusuf Gariah to say, where is Jesus Christ? Many of us are doing these things in, in many ways. I don't mean this to be condemning. Many of us do, in maybe not in explicit words, but implicitly, certainly live with the reality. Where is Jesus Christ? And how do I show him forth in all the things that most deeply affect me in the life of the, for the life of the world and for the life of my neighbors? But we ought to be asking ourselves diligently and often, where is Jesus Christ? Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul brings us to that most comforting of conclusions in verse 11. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Will not be put to shame. Uh, Henry Skugel was an uh, old-fashioned Puritan who had a funny name but wrote a really good book called The Life of God and the Soul of Man. In The Life of God and the Soul of Man, he talks about how the, the, the challenge to love, our, even ourselves at times, certainly our neighbors and those closest to us, is deeply a challenge because it requires us to forget ourselves. To, to really love someone, you have to not really think about yourself very much. Instead, you have to think about them and put their interests ahead of your own, to, to view their concerns as more important than your own concerns. And so loving is actually a very, very risky thing. Because if you do that, if you expend your whole life and forget about yourself and devote all of your energy and resources to someone else, there's a good chance that's not going to be returned. And then where are you at? Your whole life is kind of spilled out on the street, and you haven't been looking after it. You've been looking after the interest of another person, your beloved, the person that you're supposed to love. And so if they don't return that, if they don't look after you, that there you are, just kind of laid out. And then he says, here is the, the glorious truth, that we, when we love Christ, pour our hearts and our lives, our whole selves, out for someone who will never fail us, who looks after our lives and puts the pieces that were already on the street. We thought they were doing great. They were already put together. They weren't. He puts them back together. He restores us to the image of God. He, he makes us men and women who are able to stand before him with righteousness and joy, to enjoy the consuming fire that is our holy and beloved God and not be afraid. He who puts their trust in him will never be put to shame. That is a glorious truth, and it's true because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul closes for us. He says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on... The Lord Jesus bestows his riches, all the riches of heaven, on this basis. Call on him. There's no distinction. There's no credit rating system in heaven for the outpouring of heavenly blessings, as if to say, well, you know, you've been making your payments on time, you've been, you know, faithful to pray, faithful to read your Bible, faithful to do all the things you're supposed to do, so you get a little bit more blessing than this other guy over here. No. The outpouring of heavenly blessings is made without distinction 
on those who call on his name. There's no application period. There's no waiting. No, you must simply call on him. Knock, and the door will be opened. Seek, and you will find. As believers, I think we could almost sum up the challenge of the Christian life or the challenge of discipleship as simply believing that promise and living in terms of it. And one of the ways I think that we will begin to know that we really believe it and really live in terms of it when that becomes the story of our lives for the life of the world. That, 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 that the outpouring of our missional efforts, and we, when we think about what does it mean for me to be missional in my particular context, my, my workplace or my own family, is it based on the things that we think we can do to impress our neighbors, the things that the world makes distinctions about that we think we, we've got it pretty well figured out, or at least we ought to have it pretty well figured out. We've got good families, we've got nice homes, See, the Lord blesses us in all these ways. Welcome to the story. No, the way we will know that this has gripped us is when we make it our aim to show that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That, that in the whole of our testimony, we're always asking that question, where is Jesus Christ? How am I showing him forth to my neighbors in the conversations that I have? How am I showing him forth in the way that I think about work? How am I showing him forth in the way that I think about the place that I'm going to live or how I'm going to you know, uh, treat my family or, or be involved in my community? How am I going to spend my time? Where is Jesus Christ? For all who call on him will be saved. John Stott has this to say. I think it's helpful as he sort of sums up for us the, the main emphasis of this passage. He says, what Moses had said about his teaching, Paul now affirms about the gospel. It is neither remote nor unavailable. There is no need to ask who will ascend to heaven to bring Christ down or to descend to Hades to bring Christ up. Storming the ramparts of heaven and potholing in Hades in search of Christ are equally unnecessary. For Christ has come and died and been raised and is therefore immediately accessible to faith. We do not need to do anything. Everything that is necessary has already been done. Moreover, because Christ himself is near, the gospel of Christ is also near. It is in the heart and mouth of every believer. The whole emphasis is on the close, ready, easy accessibility of Christ and his gospel. Brothers and sisters, I think that should tremendously encourage us when we think about the mission that we have all been invited into. This is a word of comfort to us that is endlessly comforting when we think about our own hearts and our own need of forgiveness. And yet it is also comforting when we think about how are we going to expand on, on that? How are we going to be a part of the mission to make sure other people know this, that other people get invited into that great story? The gospel's not far off. Your ability to be faithful in the kingdom, your ability to make a difference in the lives of those you care about in your spheres of influence, it's not predicated on how well you can speak. It's not predicated on how many Bible verses you've memorized. And don't hear me wrongly, those things are tremendously useful. We need to be digging down deep into those things so that it sticks to our ribs and we become people of the book. It's not dependent upon anything that we bring to the table. It's dependent upon this, that we live in the reality that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People are going to be able to tell whether that's the heartbeat of our lives or not. 
whether that's just sort of the theological creed that's sort of over our lives, but really in reality, we think that the way that we get to God, the way that God blesses us, the way that God's going to bring our church into a building and a permanent facility, the way that he's going to fill the chairs every single Sunday, the way that he's going to bless people and the words that we speak is really just down to how clever I can be, how many good words I can say, when I can say them, or whether we actually really believe that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And his word is not far that we have believed. So a quick note of application. Think about this. Jesus' challenge to the unbelieving people of his own day was simply this. Watch me. Remember how uh, the disciples of John uh, got sent to Jesus and and John was kind of flummoxed because here he is in prison. So Jesus, are you really the Messiah to come? And his message was simply, well, what have you seen? Go back to John, report what you've seen. Again and again, his challenge, implicitly at least, was to the people, watch me. If you see me doing the works of God, by the power of God, with the heart and the compassion of God, in the authority of God, with the righteousness and holiness of God, according to the promise of God, then the only conclusion left to you is this, I am God, and therefore to be reconciled by me is to be reconciled by God for God, and there is salvation nowhere else. And now, as his disciples, in a sense, what we're called to do is say to those around us, watch me, watch me. If we're never able to say to unbelievers around me, if you really want to know what the gospel is like, watch me, then I think we are very far from the biblical picture. Now, we're all at various points along that, and I think one of the greatest discouragements to that is to immediately turn that into another law and to think, oh, great. That means if I'm failing in certain ways, if I'm, if I'm failing to read my Bible, if I'm not as prayerful as I know I need to be, then I can't be a very good, effective witness for Christ. No, the call to watch is a call to watch us run to the throne of grace. It's a call to watch us live in the reality that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it doesn't depend on us having mighty works, an impressive resume that we can pass along. It it depends on us living in the reality. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So how do we grow in the application of our text to our own lives? I think it's, watch me, watch me. But by, by so living in terms of the reality and so living in terms of the outpouring of the grace that God has poured in our own hearts that we're able to say to those around us, watch me follow Jesus. Watch me live in the reality that everyone who calls on his name will be saved. Watch me run to the throne of grace in times of need. Watch me run to the throne of grace when I'm feeling perplexed and confused. Watch me run to the throne of grace when I fail to live like I know I'm, I ought to be living. Watch me cling to Jesus with heart and soul and strength and might. That's, I think, how we will live in terms of this passage. Oh, that we would have that, that, that sting of the conscience every now and then that asks us, where is Jesus Christ? Where is Jesus Christ in the narration of my own life, in the story that I tell? And as I do that, oh, that we would have the power and the confidence and the Holy Spirit unction to say to our unbelievers, watch me. So Romans 10, 5-13 teaches us simply this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word is near you, in your heart and in your mouth, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you as people who lean upon this truth. Lord, we come before you as people who live and breathe in this truth. We come before you, Lord, as people who could not even stand before you this moment unless this truth were true of us, that everyone who calls on your name will be saved. And so, Lord, help us not to be a dry word that we have heard so many times that we begin to take it for granted. Lord, help us to ask ourselves often, where is Jesus Christ in my thoughts, in my affections, in the way that I tell my story? Lord, that that would overflow first into our own lives and experience, that we would never lack for comfort, despite our changing moods, despite at times our own sin. We would never lack for comfort that you are for us in every good way, that we belong to you. And Lord, that we would also, in our lives and in our walk, be a picture of the gospel, that we could say to those around us, watch me, watch me run to Jesus, for everyone who calls on his name will be saved. And so, Lord, by your mighty work, by the Spirit, transform us more and more into that image that people would see, that people would know these people at Christ Community Church are people who know the law came through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.